0: WEPM Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here too.
1: WEPM Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs is proud to present the Stubblefield Institute's community conversation entitled Labels, Limiting or Leveraging. The event is being broadcasted live from store ballroom on the campus of Shepherd University and the moderator is Hans Vogel. Now, here's the executive director of the Stubblefield Institute, Ashley
2: Hurst.
3: Good evening. For those who are joining us on either WEPM, WCST, or the Panhandle News Network, welcome to tonight's Stubblefield Institute community engagement conversation on the power of labels to unite or divide. My name is Ashley Hurst, and I'm the director of the Stubblefield Institute here at Shepherd University, and we are broadcasting live from the store or ballroom where we just concluded small group discussion. Before we move into our panel discussion, I'd like to introduce Dr. Eric Wagner, the Executive Director of the West Virginia Humanities Council. This conversation is part of the United We Stand Connecting Through Culture initiative that was launched last year by the National Endowment for the Humanities through partnerships with state humanities councils. We are honored that Dr. Wagner and the West Virginia Humanities Council chose to partner with the Stubblefield Institute on this initiative. Dr. Eric Wagner.
1: Uh, Thank you all. I'll be very brief. Uh, I'm overjoyed to be here. I bring greetings from the West Virginia Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities, our primary partner. Uh, In contemporary life and contemporary social discourse, it seems like we have fewer and fewer models for civil discussion. And particularly in the moment in which we live currently, there is no greater tonic, there's no better antidote for the ills that face us. Uh, for the anger and the hatred that seems to define public discourse uh, in contemporary life than people coming together in a room and speaking one-to-one, speaking with each other directly and engaging with each other as individuals, not types, not labels, not stereotypes, but really getting together and working the problem. I am so full of admiration of what's happening tonight. We're very grateful for the opportunity to partner, and I'm, I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you all for having me. Thanks, Ashley.
3: Thank you, Dr. Wagner. Now I will briefly introduce our moderator who will introduce our panelists and outline the panel discussion. I am always thrilled to be working with a fellow Shepherd alum. Hans Vogel is an alum of the Shepherd University Communications Department, and we are excited that he is returning to Shepard and as of tomorrow will be the executive director of University Communications. Hans, thank you for your time tonight and will maybe be the first to welcome you back.
4: In, in between the lines there, I'm currently unemployed, so tomorrow I'll be, I'll be ready to go. I guess that's my label this evening. Um, this is a, a really great opportunity for, uh, for me to be able to come and be part of things here at the university. And uh, for those of you who don't know my background, uh, I was in radio uh, on WEPM for many years, so this is also a great way for me to be able to uh, stay engaged in that and learn from all of the ideas that you're going to share this evening. Uh, this evening's conversation uh, is going to be facilitated by our wonderful panelists, Ms. Tanya Dallas Lewis, who is the Cultural Unity and Equity, Staff Development, and Title IX Coordinator for Jefferson County Schools. We have Ms. Maggie Cordito Cortez, who is the Housing Program Coordinator for Telemon. And we have Dr. Lindsay Levitan, Associate Professor of Psychology right here at Shepherd University. Our panelists will be answering questions and talking about our topic this evening. Uh, as we move through uh, your ideas and then take questions uh, as time allows. So we've had our small group discussions. Uh, We are going to um, take time tonight to go through uh, what you have uh, brought to us as a group, uh, starting off with your one-minute stories, and we'll invite over at the tables I transition to the wireless for those folks at home if you're wondering why there's a sudden change. And we'll start right here. Who's going to be sharing the roughly one-minute story at this table?
2: All right. I'm Dr. John Draper, and uh, looking at the list of labels, one, one label that cha- has changed greatly in my lifetime is the label of veteran. Now, uh, when I finished college didn't know what I wanted to do so I went into the army. It was during the Vietnam War toward the tail end I did not go to Vietnam I went to Oklahoma and Louisiana which some people said was worse but when I when I got out of the army I had decided I wanted to go to medical school so I applied to three medical schools and when I went for interviews uh, at two of the three schools they said well the fact that you're a veteran is going to count against you not only that but you're a white male veteran so that's going to put you at a disadvantage and that was in the early 1970s when a lot was changing and now uh, we honor our veterans and that's that's something to be proud of now, that you're a veteran or you're active duty military. Uh, recently, I went to a, a Veterans Day celebration at my grandson's school. And other people my age uh, said, you know, when I got out of the Army, everybody was mad at me. <laughs> Nobody welcomed me back. They were mad at me. Whereas all these they, they they said, you know, I have to come to my grandchild's school to be honored as a veteran. And so I, I think that's an interesting way that, the, that labels change due to historical context and time.
4: The associations we have with those words. All right, on to the next group. Just introduce yourself and tell your story.
5: Hi, I'm Allison Mee, and I'm gonna share a story that is a friend of mine's story. So as an adult, she identifies as biracial, and she told me about when when she was in third grade and had to fill out some forms before a test and had to choose what her race was, and she did not know what to say. And it was supposed to be just a simple question to gather demographics, but it bothered her enough that she told me about the story 25 years later she was still thinking about
4: it the the box you check and the label you give can stay with you all right on to our next group yes ma'am
0: hi my name is Susan Jones Um, my first job in high school was working at an oil change place like Jiffy Lube and I made it all the way up to assistant manager just to prove that I could as a female And I had a gentleman who worked there who was a few years older than me and thought that I could not do the job and called for manager assistance and could not get the drain plug out. I was definitely not strong enough, but I made a ladder of wrenches and then just used physics and popped that little drain plug right out. So just goes to show that even though the label of female meant weaker, I was definitely smarter in that case. (laughs)
4: All right, our next group. Okay, I,
1: in 1995, 150 years ago, I was in a PhD program at Arizona State University. And it was the first week that I was there. We were sitting around a table. If you're from West Virginia, as many of you know, when you get out in the world, you're kind of an anomaly. You're very strange. People like to ask you questions. We were going around the table. This is my name. Here's where I'm from. When I said I'm from West Virginia, a person across the table who I'd never met before that evening Said, "Oh, you should be very proud. You're from West Virginia, and you can read." Now, again, I was in a Ph.D. program. I had nothing to prove. I, you know, but I, I said a very terrible word that night at the table. But I thought, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't have anything to prove. But it's still like, like the Allison said, you know, it's 30 years later. That story is still rattling around in my head, and that story is not unique. I mean, anybody who says I'm X, and somebody across the table says, "Oh, you're X. You must be some negative or something bad." You know, it's, it's something that no matter how invested we are in it, obviously, we still carry it with us.
4: Thank you. Our next group, who will be sharing?
3: <laughs> um, so my, my label is a little bit different. And because um, I used to be the director of the Eastern Panhandle Free Clinic. So that was seven years ago. I know that's hard to believe, it? But that's how I still am introduced. And I find it really interesting because I'm a much more complex, involved person than that one title. And um, I know it gives some recognition, but I'm a grandmother, great-grandmother, mother. I've had multiple jobs and, you know, but I've been identified in this one little thing. So, it's just kind of (laughs) interesting.
4: All right, and is that everybody? Okay, great, so those are good examples of how labels not only have Impacted the lives of some of the people who are here with us this evening, uh, but also how those labels have stuck with them Uh, and the sometimes limiting parameters that those labels can bring uh, have stayed with them. So we're going to move now on to uh, our panel discussion and talk about the. um, Let me get to the panel remarks. I just want to make sure I have all of it in front of me. Um, We are going to. talk a bit about uh, – go now to our panelists, um, who will uh, start off with just – Ashley, is it going to start off with table questions? Again, am I back around? One question for them. Okay, great. Just wanted to make sure I'm on the right track. Okay, so uh, putting it to our panel, and anyone who would like to jump in on this first, uh, our first question this evening – Um, And actually I've got two sheets in front of me and I'm not seeing the first one So I just want to make sure I'm kicking this off in the right place. I apologize to our audience at home and to the folks here in attendance For this one. Okay. All right. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Thank you very much So for the panelists from your personal experience and professional standpoint, why do we use labels? From your personal experience and your professional standpoint, why do we use labels? So Maggie, you want to jump in on that one first?
5: Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I think most folks use labels because it's a shortcut. You don't have to think about asking a question or getting to know that person. It's kind of like when you look at an iceberg, I see the top part, and I can make an assumption about this person, and I can keep on moving with my day. Where if you um, – if when you use a label or a stereotype um, – it's really just an assumption that you're making. And it's a quick mental tape, something you've probably heard growing up. And it just, you know, like he, the one gentleman was talking about being a veteran. Um, you know, back in the day, I remember when veterans would come back from the planes in Vietnam and people would be yelling and spitting at them. It's a big mm-hmm. difference now. But there was an assumption made that you were a baby killer, um, you know, back in, those, in the 70s.
4: Thank you, Tanya.
5: I would
0: say, uh, professionally, uh, working in a school district, uh, labels often inform um, processes. Uh, who's doing what? Uh, who's responsible for what? So labels can, um, you know, be used in some ways that require context that depends on the industry. And in education, our uh, main widget that we produce is educated students, um, supporting families, et cetera. And so across uh, students, staff, teachers, service personnel, labels really do help us determine who's doing what and how that's getting done. So they can serve as as a a, a means of a positive uh, way for us to understand what we do and how we do it. Personally, in my personal life, labels, uh, it depends on the context, right? How they're being used and in what context they're being applied. So it's gonna depend because labels can be good and labels can be bad. And I thought it was really interesting uh, as I listened to each table's representative, I was taking notes and I was listening to how majority of the reflections on labels uh, were ones that had a negative impact. Uh, But truly, uh, labels can also have a positive impact. So that's my answer.
4: Positive impact, Dr. Levitan.
6: I'm I'm gonna say basically the same stuff only with fancy science jargon. <laughs> uh, so basically, um, we use labels because they are easy. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. But um, easy can have different connotations. So we. Use, I, don't, I didn't say they were yeah.
5: positive. <laughs> I, believe me, <laughs> I don't think that they're positive at all.
6: Oh no, that's what I'm saying, I, I heard the negative. And easy can be good, too. And it's both, so we use labels, I, I find it easier to think about labels by second, stepping back from people for a second and understanding that we label things, we label events, we label objects, we label everything around us all the time. And the reason that we do that is because we need those labels to help us interact so we're not spending all our lives trying to figure out if we should sit in a chair or if we should sit on a table instead. We have the label for that object that tells us what to expect, that tells us how to uh, interact. We have the label for a, for a fast food restaurant because it tells us, okay, we've gotta go up to the counter and order versus uh, a a different type of restaurant where we go sit down. And so we have those labels. Our minds just want to organize everything into categories. And we do it with people too, We organize people into categories. And in some ways uh, that is helpful and in some ways that is harmful but our brain just doesn't have the bandwidth width to treat every person or every object or every situation as completely distinct. We don't, our, our brain just doesn't have that kind of power, and so it uses shortcuts. Um, the term that's usually used is that we're cognitive misers. We use the shortcuts because the shortcuts are easy and that lets us save the energy for um, for what we personally, whatever that is for us personally, feel that we need to save that cognitive energy, that thinking. For so the labels can be easy in a good way, right? It is helpful for my students to go aha, she is a professor, and therefore um, I should be uh, I should be thinking well yeah that's a bit of a problem when they think they should know all the answers but or i should know all the answers but it, they it helps them to know how to interact with me they have certain expectations about how i'm going to talk and how they should be talking because of that label but at the same time that quick label is going to mean that they're going to get some other things wrong because I am a unique individual as well, and so, at at its best, labels are giving us a way to um, more efficiently interact with the world uh, and understand our place with it and reduce certainty, uh, or reduce uncertainty. Excuse me. But at worst, they are shoving people into boxes that they don't actually belong in. Often uncomfortable boxes and leading to stereotyping and discrimination, right? Because as soon as you put that label on someone, all of those assumptions are following for better or for worse.
5: That's why I don't. I don't really personally. I don't feel that labels are good. I don't see any good to them, uh, other than maybe like what Tanya said about categorizing. Um, for the school, for healthcare, but even still, you know, again, it's just, I almost feel like labels are basically another word for stereotyping. That's just my personal view.
6: So I think maybe we need to talk a little bit about the difference between their, okay, psych speak again, achieved labels versus ascribed labels. That's our next question.
4: This is perfect. This is actually coming right from our audience. Uh, You are listening, by the way, to Labels Limiting or Leveraging. This is a Stubblefield Institute community engagement conversation. Uh, If you're joining us on the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, our panelists in the room this evening are Tanya Dallas Lewis, uh, Cultural Unity and Equity Coordinator, uh, Staff Development Title IX Coordinator for Jefferson County Schools, Maggie Garrido-Cortez, Housing Program Coordinator for Telemon, and Dr. Lindsay Levitan, Associate Professor of Psychology, at Shepherd University. So the question from our audience is is there a difference between labels that are a fact of biology, uh, age, gender, race, etc. and those that are determined by life choices or even achievements, doctor, for example, or parent. So if you can expand on that sort of what's the difference between those labels that may be more descriptive or categorizing and those that are earned or placed upon us?
6: I I was really just gonna say what you said when you summarized those terms, which, (laughs) it, it is very different when you choose a label for yourself, when you are trying to signal something to the world, right, if I go around saying I am Professor Levitan, I'm trying to signal that this is an important part of my identity, right, as opposed to when, Oh, hypothetically, a relative of mine might put me uh, in a different kind of box. Uh, I'm just remembering a time when uh, a relative was like, well, why are you taking that job as a professor? You're just gonna quit in a couple of years when you have kids. Okay, so we're putting me in the mom box here right now and somehow that means we have to take me out of the professor box? How is that working? Right, so um, it, I think it makes a difference whether it's something that we're choosing as part of identity, our identity versus something that society is choosing for us, and not even necessarily biology or anything like that. sometimes society just decides to group people in a certain way that doesn't necessarily have any um,
0: any deeper meaning to it at all. And so for me, labels can actually be positive. Again, it's the how and what context. So um, labels can be leveraging if it's based on identity affirmation. And so as a cultural unity and equity coordinator for the district, part of my job, my role, is to make sure marginalized students have a voice. And so that means that students can show up and be exactly who they are without having to give that up. And so that means that there are some labels that society, to your point, may have assigned that can create a fixed identity for some students, which is negative, and staff too. Uh, But some of those uh, labels students uh, identify and choose out of of pride. Um, For instance, I wasn't born yet, but I'm thinking about the Black Panther Party. Um, and the black and I'm, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, all right? So we took a word that had negativity. Um, as we know, language is saturated with memory, culture, and meaning, right? And so depending on what that word, how it lives in my mouth, and my culture, and my memory, and the ways that it's been used, may differ from yours, right? And so at that time, I saw something that I look back on um, as a Gen Xer, And I see something powerful that they did with black and proud. And so now that became an identity affirmation. And it was a label that they were proud of. And quite frankly, in my experience, I am black, right? And I identify with that word in a different way that others may, but that is identity affirmation for me. It also does something else that's leveraging. In in a state or a county that is majority identity white, I know when other people say, I'm black, that means something. We have a common experience and challenges and things that we're going through, as it does for anyone, whether they are identifying themselves based on their gender, uh, their uh, sexual orientation, um, maybe their linguistics, uh, their religion. I could keep going on and on. Their geographic location, their exceptionality, their ability, do you see what I'm saying? So my belief is that, um, in response to your question, Hans Vogel, that labels can be limiting and leveraging. Again, it's gonna depend on the context and uh, how they're applied.
4: Can you all talk about the difference then between a label and somebody's identity? How do we separate those two things? Or are they separate?
6: They overlap, right? An identity is what uh, someone feels for themselves. It is something that they take on themselves that they I identify as um, it is how they think about themselves and that often is going to involve some labels but other labels are put on us by other people they are not always part of our identity we don't own them in the same way so I
0: would say it's complicated Hans you and I use that word a lot in our conversations it's complicated um, and so for me personally and professionally in my experience, I see it as a little bit of both. What about you, Maggie?
5: I agree, I, th- I feel like it's a little bit of both. It really is, it, they, they kind of overlap each other. Um,
0: yeah. And sometimes we want them to and sometimes we don't and it depends, right? Because you have an organizational status. So I'm gonna go back to the district because that's where I live, right? That's where I work. So organizationally, I used to be a classroom teacher a teacher, a middle school teacher. I love middle school kids, by the way. Um, But that, once I became an employee of the Board of Education and started working in the central office, my label changed for the good in some cases. Um, And so it changed from me walking in a building and people saying, you know, I'd say, I'm I'm Tanya Dallas Lewis, I'm the seventh grade middle school teacher, to now coming in a building and people know who I am. Oh, that's Tanya Dallas Lewis. See the difference? So organizational status can impact a label for good or for bad, including for our service personnel who often are very vocal uh, in letting me know when it comes to staff development about their voice and the power that their voice has even if they are not professionals. And so then what does that word professional mean? Another label. Is it good? Is it bad? Why is it different from service personnel? Professional service personnel? All right, so anyway, I see it's complicated. Um, It can be good and bad, and I think the two examples that I gave, I think, demonstrate that.
4: I think you've all three sort of danced uh, around this next question a little bit, but are there certain groups which are more impacted by labels than other groups, and then how is that power weighed out, or, or how does that shift that used in society? I see the wheels turning. That's... So, so, so you so talk about the impact on groups. So how are, are there certain groups that are more impacted by labels than others?
6: Uh, I'm gonna question the premise, right? So we have multiple group identities. We all have multiple labels. So everyone's going to have some label that is impacting them more than some other label. So I think it is vastly oversimplifying identity to say, aha, this group is impacted and this group isn't. Because even when someone isn't impacted because they are the, the dominant or uh, group in one characteristic, they are highly likely to have some other characteristic in which they are a, um, in the marginalized group or the subordinate group or the devalued group.
5: So, like for example because you're right that the question is very open but like for myself thinking as a housing program person um, i think about appraisal bias which is really on the rise in the last 10 years it's gone up 75 percent appraisal bias is where appraisers go and and uh, do an evaluation of the home to give you an estimate of what the worth is and what they found is that most uh the appraisal bias happens to our black community. So, and, and that's a real thing. It's measured, it's been proven. Um, and so depending on, like she said, the context or uh, how did you say it? Um, oh, I don't have some words. Anyway, but so yeah, for, for like with housing, the black community has been severely impacted. They were not able to build wealth over the last 70 years. So, you know, I think if we were to. If we talk about that, we should probably think about the different contexts. So like for me, I'm thinking housing, right? Um, for, for, Dr., for Tanya, it might be you know education. Same for, for Dr. Levitan, it might be education, so. But yeah, depending on the group, certain groups are definitely more impacted.
0: I'm gonna agree, absolutely, and, and a lot of this has to do with a historical context as well. Mm-hmm. So let me just say that every group whatever those groups are that we decide that they are, has experienced some form of oppression, hardship. You know, I don't care what color you are, where you come from, what language you speak, we've all had some hard times, right? Right? We all had some hard times. However, (laughs) that impact is going to vary dependent upon where your uh, social category lands you in this caste system that we have in America. So it's going to depend on where you are, again, whether it's class. So let's talk about low SES, or low socioeconomic status, all right? Your class and value systems can conflict with uh, middle class, right? And then wealthy class. And so there are some things that will impact people in low SES, I'm sorry, school teacher here, uh, district administrator, let me translate, low socio. let's just say economically disadvantaged, our economically disadvantaged friends are gonna feel impact at a a higher um, rate, or uh, impact is the word, um, than someone perhaps in the wealthy class. But don't sleep, because people in the wealthy class also experience hard times, right? Uh, Just, it's gonna look different. So absolutely yes, 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 yes. The question was, are some groups more impacted than others when it comes to label? Heck to the yeah. Mm -hmm.
4: You brought it to mind, uh, Tanya. If you're talking about, uh, for example, a s- student who's chronically late because they don't have a reliable ride to school, could be have a label thrust upon them of lazy, mm-hmm. and then that carries with them through their academic career. Likewise, uh, if you have a student who ha- is privileged or uh, ac- ac- economically advantaged, uh, they may not, they may be uh, aloof or out of touch or privileged, which. Is, is another label that they carry with how much does do you think the impact of a label have to do with one's ability to own it themselves versus having it placed on them by someone in authority
5: well having a label placed on you is probably always going to be uncomfortable because you didn't pick it you didn't choose it right um, now we were at the table and I was like you know I got grandkids I got a stepkids kids I love kids, but they make me crazy, um, but when the whole boomer thing came out, you know, they, I have a lot, quite a bit of gray hair, and their joke was like, oh, Mimi's a boomer, oh, and it was, I was like, never call me that ever again, because I, in my mind, just had this picture of. Uh, this crotchety old person, get off my grass kind of person, you know, and I'm like, I'm not that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's
3: very difficult.
4: As, as I think someone said, it's complicated. It yes, is very
3: complicated.
4: complicated. Which is, complicated. is why we're, we're here this evening. Uh, Stubblefield Institute Community Engagement Conversation labels, are they limiting? Or leveraging. We're taking audience questions right now for our distinguished panelists, Tanya Dallas-Lewis, Cultural Unity and Equity Coordinator, Staff Development Coordinator, and Title IX Coordinator at Jefferson County Schools, Maggie Cordito-Cortez, Housing Program Coordinator at Telemann, and Lindsey Levitan, Associate Professor of Psychology here at Shepherd University. And uh, those of you listening at home are listening to the Panhandle News Network, WEPM Martinsburg, WCST in Berkeley Springs. Labels are uh, used, as we talked about, in policy. It determines, perhaps, health care allotment or funding, things of that nature. So how do we disassociate the stereotypes from those labels that we use for organization or um, those sorts of uh, resources from state or federal?
0: Part of it, um, in my experience, is the intentionality about remembering to not let your first thought be your last thought. And what I mean by that is, when we routinely uh, interpret or socially categorize people based on our own personal, lived experiences, assumptions, values, and beliefs about people who are not like us, we run the risk of um, doing some, really, you know, some, some damage, uh, uh, harm, and so one of the ways to mitigate that or to even be proactive instead of reactive is to remember to be intentional about learning how to increase or expand our emotional intelligence, um, our cultural intelligence, uh, asking ourselves, doing some introspection, you know, from whom, where, how did I get these assumptions, values, and beliefs about someone different than me? So when that comes to policy and healthcare and, and politics and who gets what and what group should get what. I think these type of conversations that we're having today where we come in a room and we get a little bit vulnerable and a little bit uncomfortable and hear from one another and share our life experiences and replace our judgment with curiosity, that's one of the ways that we can do that in my experience, Hans Vogel.
2: You
5: know, I think that's why you know when you put a label on someone um, you know, it's different than when you put a label on yourself. But, again, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, and, it's, you know, that's why I'm, I'm not a big fan of labels or stereotypes. I, I, I don't think that there's any good stereotypes. You know, I, I think some of you probably have heard the example, you know, oh, all Asian kids are good at math, but that's not a good stereotype. It's not a compliment, because what about that one child who is not good at math? And so you know, and uh, also it it raises the level of expectation that you know, if you don't meet that, then you are less than. So we, you know, uh, again, as far as policy changes, you know, what what can we do? I I think to um, having the conversation, getting to know somebody rather than just going, oh, he's a veteran, oh, he's that, Mm, she's this. Uh, You really have to look at having that conversation and saying, hey, where are you from? Are you, were you born here in the US? Are you from South America? You know, I, when I first moved to West Virginia, one of the things that people would ask me was, what are you? <laughs> and, and honestly, goodness, I didn't get mad. I just thought, this is a teaching moment. In my head, I was like, well, I'm gonna tell them where I'm from, where my family's from. And, you know, sometimes people would ask me, do you speak Mexican? I'm like, okay. Um, no, I don't, but I speak Spanish, you know? Uh, try to open those doors and bridge that, that uh, the cultural differences. Uh, and then really work together as a community to talk to your uh, representatives to change policy, like with, um, the uh, appraisal bias or, you know, back in the day with the redlining that happened in the housing uh, industry and the housing market. So definitely, like Tanya said, we have to get to know each other and not be afraid to, to, if you're sincere and you really are curious, nobody's really gonna get mad at you. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's, you know, half, I think, I don't know, don't quote me (laughs) on this. But most of your communication is in your body language. Mm-hmm. It's not even in the words you say, it's how you say it. Um, so that's my part.
6: <clears throat> I would say we're, we're, we need to talk more about the impact of labeling ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what, I absolutely agree on all of this. Um, but even when we label ourselves, that is um, in some ways putting us into a specific cognitive paradigm. It's, um, even if we're owning that label, that is the label that we have chosen for ourselves. It can um, change our way of thinking about the world, of thinking about ourselves, thinking what our options are in the world, right? What we can do, um, what we should want to do. Like I'm kind of thinking back to I high school, yes, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about uh, uh, high school a little bit where, you know, the click that you were in came with a certain amount of things that you were supposed to do versus not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we do need to think about the implications of the labels we choose for ourselves and how they can change. Um, what, what we believe we can do and what we believe we can't do, I can tell you some stories about my students who have labeled themselves as bad at math, and right. they aren't. The mind just doesn't work that way, but it creates a block when we self-stereotype. And um, it also, when we label ourselves, that tends to correlate with labeling other people right we label ourselves and that tells us who the other is that creates an out group when we create an in group and that has implications too in terms of how we interact with other people in terms of how we interpret the world around us
0: so i'm going to i'm I'm not gonna disagree, but I am gonna disagree in the nuance of what you said. It's such an open-ended question, and it really is complicated. And so I say all that to say that it depends on who's doing the labeling. Uh, I must label myself if if the majority identity has determined that I am invisible, and that I am not seen. And so I must label myself. And that labeling gives me power, because now I am strong, I'm courageous, I am amazing, mm-hmm. I can do anything I put my mind to, I am industrious, I am innovative, I am talented. I, do you want me to keep going? <laughs> so sometimes labeling is an act of empowerment, especially if you're not being seen. And Maggie was talking about uh, model minority myth that um, puts, you know, based on the data, to your mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Asian students usually experience and uh, I recently got to um, uh, attend a K-12 uh, NADOC summit where uh, there were Asian uh, professionals, uh, educators, uh, educating us on the negative aspect of model minority myth. Now, I'm aware of the negative aspect, but they put me on to some thoughts and ideas that I had never considered. For example, when uh, they talked about, um, really quickly, situations where um, Asian students usually are encouraged in technical, you know, math, etc., in STEM, but are rarely looked at as the person to be the president of the, you know, of, of the, the the student government, um, or to pursue acting, or you know, just things outside of that creative arts, performing arts, right? Mm-hmm. There's things outside of that, that the paradigm that or that, or, or that label, to your point, that we put them in. And I had never never really thought about it. Like they asked us how many Asian folks are deans at universities. They're not even encouraged to be deans at universities or uh, the heads of Fortune 500 companies. In America, I'm speaking in America. And so some of that information was really, really insightful. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never I never really thought about it like that. I'm thinking model minority, you know, what's the problem? You know? Yeah, everybody thinks good. you're great, sounds right. good. But that fixed identity can also be limiting, especially if you have someone in a particular mm-hmm. category who cannot do what you think they can do. Like people assume that I'm good at track and field. I am But the thought is that I am because historically my people group is, and they are, but I'm not. So thank you right. for that question. I'm that not it?
6: quite sure where that disagrees with me.
0: <laughs> well, well, because it, originally, you had said that uh, we should probably step away from labeling it. No, um, I did not say that. I have. I wrote, no, I, not, no. I wrote it down. I did not know. I wrote it down. You were
6: saying may that lab, say. labeling
0: can minimize. I think if I if I if I if I uh, wrote my lab- my questions.
6: Labels question. are okay. So okay. in psychology, when you ask a psychologist, "Is this a good thing or a bad thing?" the answer is always yes. <laughs>
0: right? if, is this a good thing or a bad were, thing? Yes.
6: If it were entirely a bad thing, no one would ever do it. And if it were entirely a good thing, everybody would always do it. It's always more nuanced than that. And it is nuanced, and, that's, so, and so that's we, originally
0: what I said, yeah. is that I wasn't, I was, I was agreeing with you, but the nuance of what you were saying is so complex that I had to, I had to zoom out uh, and say that it's complicated. So we agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's complicated. I believe
5: so.
4: Our panelists. Oh, problem
5: mo- solved right there. Modeling civil <laughs> discord
4: for everybody at home. Yeah. Uh, we have Tiny Dallas Lewis, Maggie Cardido Cortez, and Lindsay Levitan, uh, our panelists this evening, along with our audience here at Shepherd University. Uh, this is an initiative of the Stubblefield Institute on the Panhandle News Network, WEPM, and WCST. You've actually segued nicely once again into our next question. When someone has been labeled either in a positive or in a negative way, uh, how can they change their identity? Uh, what are some ways that a label could be reclaimed if it's negative or used to as a foundation for a community of positive?
6: Label reclaimed. Right. Wow. Linguistic reappropriation. Mm, there you go.
0: Um. Well, I'm gonna say that we, we we, we see examples of this happening all the time. Um, our babies do it, and when I say babies, I'm talking about, uh, again, a middle school teacher here, so anybody under 25 is a baby to me. But our babies do it. Um, they will take language and linguistics and vernacular and change it to something else and make it positive. And then my old head will try to use the word and I'm using it incorrectly based on how they have deconstructed the word. So. Uh, we see that a, a lot, especially, uh, I'm going to talk about my own community in the black community. Uh, we have certain words that we say that if you say it, you, you're going to be in trouble, mm-hmm. all right? So And so we have taken certain words, and we don't all agree on all of the words, but especially our youth have taken certain, certain words um, that have a negative construct, and they have used it to empower themselves. It has become a term that is associated with friendship and respect and companionship uh, and so much more. So I feel like we're doing that already depending on your generation, your age, your geographic location. Um, there are certain words that we say here in West Virginia that's a curse word uh, farther up north, you know, the, the farther north you go. So I think I think we're doing that already and because I, I don't wanna, I'm not a cusser but I, I have some examples but I, I don't wanna use them because um, Ashley said to remember the FGC. This is a
4: live broadcast.
0: Yes, and this is a live broadcast. But I'm just, I'm just thinking about the word for female dog. There are populations of young people, girls, who use this term in a positive and affirming way. And so they've taken a label, right? Am I right? And they've now decided to use it in an empowering way in their group, in their age group, right? And in their friendship group. So that's just an example of how I feel like we really are doing that. We do it all the time. We've been doing it for since we've been on a planet. Yeah,
6: and it's, it's something that we see a lot in subordinate groups when they become more uh, conscious and want to take action. Part of that is the, um, the reframing of the language. Um, I, I remember there being an ad campaign a while back that was throw like a girl, and it was a, a feminist campaign redefining what that mm. phrase means. And uh, so so we do see that in various mm-hmm. movements. Um, the people using what had been a harmful label and reframing it to give them a sense of community and self-esteem.
5: Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head right now. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank for some reason.
6: Well, I, I mean, I, I think we've already I think talked you guys about got that. several totally. of them, yeah.
4: so, and To your points about uh, you know uh, sort of we can use this word my friends can call me that but you can't Mm -hmm. what are some of the best ways that uh, community members professionals any of us who want to cause no harm can know what the best words to use are how do we know what's okay and how somebody wishes to be labeled
0: Maggie said it before just ask Mm -hmm. That really is the easiest way because all three of us um, are complex. You all look at us and you make assumptions about all of us, whether it's Lindsey, myself, Maggie. Mm -hmm. Of course we do. It's a mental shortcut. That's what our brains are supposed to do. It is. It's a mental shortcut. So so everyone, and I can't speak for my whole people group, I can just tell you that in my experience, you just ask, say, hey, by the way, I'm just curious, um, what is it that you would prefer for me to call you? how would you like me to address you? Or what does this mean? I'm curious and I don't know. What does this mean? Can I say this word? Generally, especially those who are in marginalized groups or underserved communities, we love when someone asks us yes. this instead of making an assumption or just not asking at all. So that, that's what I would say from, from, my, uh, you know, from my, where I sit, that would be my answer. Yeah,
5: Because if you're gonna try and guess and throw a label without knowing anything about the person or the group of people, you might step on your own foot. You know, on your own foot, and so that's why I kind of try to stay away from labels. I mean, there's labels everywhere. We're always going to have labels, and there some of them are necessary. But as, as humanly possible, I I really do try to stay away from it. You know, in the you know, Latin American community. Uh, we love to make jokes about everything. It's how we deal with our poverty. It's how we deal with everything is through humor. And so a lot of times, you know, we'll say jokes about, you know, Latinos and it's okay. But it's like Tanya said, you know, it's not cool when somebody else just comes up and's like, hey, blah, 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 says something that you now doesn't sound so good or, you know. Sounds kind of demeaning or makes you feel less than so ah, better safe than sorry and um, have a conversation you know how do you pronounce your name mm-hmm. you know oh it's Margarita but I don't care you can call me Maggie it's okay
4: thank you it's it, well, it, it's always good to have um, this course I like that you've all been uh, showing us how to talk through things identify clarify and uh, determine where we we can settle in and, uh, you know, even on things where we may not be completely in the same spot, uh, find the commonality. And that's part of um, this next question. Uh, How do we uh, limit ourselves um, when we label people based on political beliefs or affiliations? How does that change how we interact with some of our community members and neighbors?
6: I'm a political psychologist. Oh, she's gonna
5: tear this up, aren't you?
6: <laughs> this, is, this is kind of what I study. Uh, so, a political psychologist is someone who uh, basically studies how we um, how we think about our political attitudes, how we um, engage in political behavior, and what can push that around. What are the sources of that, and so forth, and are super big there, right? Um, we we take on those labels and we use them as heuristics for what we should be doing and what other people must think, and often we use them with surprisingly little knowledge about what they actually mean. Um, if you if you look at um, at at the population in general and start asking them, you know, what what do members of this party think? What do members of that party think? Um, One, it is kind of painting everyone with a super broad brush, but also, really a lot of it just doesn't actually match up with party platforms. Um, And so we we sometimes create divisions where where there aren't any politically because we think, "Aha! Uh-huh, I'm in this party, so I must agree with whatever this person says, and I'm in that party, so I must agree with that person, but disagree with the other person. And uh, the more we um, interact with people who aren't in our group, um, the more we, Uh, try not to make those assumptions and instead try to interact with those people as individuals. Uh, The more we actually think about our political views, the more we really analyze them, the more we have contact with people who we assume are going to disagree with us, the more we uh, actually come to understand our own views, think through our own views better, um, and uh, sort through all of that, rather than just sort of using that shortcut that is associated with the label.
0: I love that word, shortcut. Um, I, I have learned in my short time on the planet, just kidding, I have, I've only been here 49 years, I'm a slow baby, right? But um, I have learned, <laughs> I have learned um, for me that uh, our assumptions about others um, drives our behavior. So if I'm making an uh, an assumption and I think that Charlotte does not like me, that's gonna drive my behavior implicitly, right? Um, uh, Subconsciously. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will miss out on knowing a very, very wonderful and beautiful woman. Um, And so we limit ourselves if we are simply gonna go and give in to those stereotypes. We really do have to get to know people beyond uh, the labels. Again, my belief is that I believe that labels, and. Can be both limiting and leveraging depending on the context and how they're used. But when it comes to uh, making assumptions about people based on political party, just like you said before, Maggie, I love the, ice, the iceberg. You know, uh, 90% of that iceberg is underwater. And so we, if we make decisions based solely on what we see, man, we've missed it because most of us are not what meets the eye. So, absolutely.
5: I just think about years ago um I had a uh, nurse friend of mine who um uh, said, you know, I don't know what's going on with all the the Mexican ladies that come to the the doctor's office. Hmm. Uh, and she's like, you know, they're they're always late, but they want to be seen. And I I thought about it and I I put some thought behind it and it's really that whole inference, right? So They're late, so they must not care about their kids. But in Latino culture, if you show up on time, you're about a half hour to 45 minutes early. Okay, so even though, and that's what I tried to explain to her. I said, you know, even though they she showed up 45 minutes late in their country, and this is a person who has just recently arrived to the U.S. You know, they don't understand that. You know, in the U.S., time is money. It's right? mm-hmm. a little saying mm-hmm. right in mm-hmm. Latino culture, if you show up an hour you show up on time you're an hour early, and you're going to be helping set up tables and dishes <laughs> and <laughs> right but you know as Americans where you know, time is money, the fact that she arrived late she the the nurse felt that this woman did not care about her kids but was being entitled because she wanted to be seen mm. but really the 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 mom, you know, she's very invested in her kids' health. She doesn't realize that here in the US, that's not how we roll. We don't show up 45 minutes late. So it's like, you have to educate folks, you know? Hey, this is how we do here. I know in you know, Latin America, it's very common to be half hour late, you know? Um, it was one of the things, when I first came back from Bolivia, I, um, it took me such a long time to, and I still struggle with being on time. <laughs> but I was early today. Um, but uh, the, the, just little cultural differences, you know. Uh, and you know, I was born here in the U.S., but I grew up in South America and then came back to the U.S. So it was kind of different, you know, And as a Latina with, you know, parents from South America, being here in the U.S., it was a real hard struggle. When you talked about high school, you know, I had all my friends that were American kids, you know, and then I had this very strict Hispanic father, you know. And so, you know, you're not going anywhere. You you know, I, they have to come and talk to me first. And, oh, I think of my first dance, he, him and my mom came to my first dance with me. And I thought I was going to die, but I was like, this is the only way I'm going to get out of this house. <laughs> <laughs> I got to do this. But it was surprising because when I did it, all the other kids were like, that's so cool, your parents came. They thought it was cool. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and they were like, where are you from? And then it was a talking point. Like you just talk to somebody.
0: And this is the part yeah. of labels that I love mm-hmm. because if we all assimilate and become the same, then we miss out on Maggie we, and her cool parents coming <laughs> to the dance.
6: Cool parents, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yeah. But. But there is a difference between assimilation and labels. But I don't no. oh, Okay. We true. can just all be different, right? right. So, we but, can, you know, I,
0: but the lack of labels. I mean, again, I that's know, what I'm saying. No, I'm toting the middle here. I am, again, it depends yeah. on the context and how yeah. it's applied, and
6: I'm oh, good. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I was going to say something, and then I got distracted The question was by about the story. political <laughs>
5: parties and things, but again, you know, yeah. get to know your neighbor, get to talk to them. Um, you know, I hear... And I'm sure everybody, you know, you're on social media, and it's just like, oh, there's a snowflake over there, liberal hippies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I went to go vote (laughs) at one point, and somebody said, oh, you gotta, you know, vote for this candidate. And then somebody on the back was like, oh, she's a liberal hippie. (laughs) I was like. I get that label I'm just walking by because I said no thank you but you know it's funny you know I, I thought it was funny but you know um, yeah. maybe somebody else might not have thought it was funny uh,
6: I remember <laughs> what I was gonna say oh that good that is, uh basically that when when we're looking at other people's behavior we're always trying to understand why people do things and uh, we do jump to the things that are consistent with the label. We interpret ambiguous information, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being late, in a way that fits with our stereotypes, <coughs> in a way Confirmation that's going to fit with our expectations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, sometimes in a way that is particularly going to uh, blame an individual rather than looking at the broader context.
4: I do it all the time when I drive, constantly labeling oh,
6: that's a- <laughs> uh,
4: bad drivers and jerks. I, I, we are out of time this evening. Uh, I'm going to turn things back over to the executive director of the Stubblefield Institute, Ashley Hurst. Thank you so much, everyone, for allowing me to participate. I've learned a lot from the panel and from our audience. Uh, and uh, I hope you will continue to follow the Stubblefield Institute. If you're not on the mailing list, uh, please do visit the website and do that. Have a wonderful evening uh, to our folks at home and everyone here. I'll turn it back over to Ashley.
3: Thank you Hans, Tanya, Maggie, and Lindsay, for sharing your thoughts and expertise on the use of labels in our community. And I hope that from this discussion, we have all taken some um, tidbits away that we will continue to think about and gain the more, to borrow a word from the panel, nuanced perspective on the use of labels in our society. I hope that you've enjoyed your time with us tonight. If you have, please join us again. Our next event is on March 20th. It will be here in the store or ballroom at 5.30, and it will focus on the moderation of online hate speech. If you'd like more information, you can certainly join our mailing list through our website, StubblefieldInstitute.org, or you can follow us on social media. Once again, I'd like to thank our partners, the West Virginia Humanities Council, the National Endowment for the Humanities, Skinner Accident and Injury Lawyers and the West Virginia Community Foundation for their generous support. And finally, if you value creating space like this for community dialogue, I do invite you to consider supporting the Stubblefield Institute with a financial gift. More information about making a donation to the Institute can be found on the Stubblefield Institute website. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great evening and a safe trip to your next destination.